Take as much time as you need. <coughs> All right. Good morning, everybody. So I don't know about you all. I have been looking forward to this exit series for a long time. I'm really, really excited um, that we get to jump in and we get to dive into the book of Exodus in our Pyramids series. Um, if you didn't get a handout, I have handouts up that you can take notes on, um, on the back table. Um, that's got a schedule on it. It's got some of the stuff that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with our Pyramids method of reading the Bible. So be sure and grab one of those. Are there enough copies back there? Okay, perfect. I'm going to do my best to try and remember to keep making copies each week so you have the notes at least. Um, and then uh, I've also got on the Version Bible app, if you're an app person, I've got an event made up um, with all the scriptures we're going to read, and it's actually got some extra resources that you're not going to get in the message today. So um, if you've got that, you can follow along. All sorts of resources because I want us to be able to dive into the Word and really get to know God's Word. Um, let's go to God in prayer. Let's prepare ourselves to read the Word. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We're thankful that it's given to us for teaching, for correcting, for warning. We thank you that you've given us this guide that we can use in our lives, Lord. We thank you that it gives us everything we need in order to be saved, everything we need in order to live out the Christian life. God, we ask that as we dive into your word today, as we look at the book of Exodus, that you would prepare our hearts to receive what it is that you want to tell us, Lord. And we ask that you would help us to go and take the gospel out into the world, into a lion, into Nebraska, into all of the world, Lord. We thank you for your son. We thank you for all of the things that you've given us. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the truth said, all right. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. But before we jump in, I kind of want to set the stage for what we are going to be looking at. Um, so Exodus 1 starts this way. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went into Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So, if you had a Bible that didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers and titles, um, it would seem as though, and you finished up Genesis, it would seem like the story is just continuing. Right? When you read the end of Genesis into the beginning of Exodus, it kind of the story just flows right along. And so if you didn't have that marker telling you you're in a new book, it would seem like it's just chapter uh, 51 of Genesis. And in fact, as we're reading, it's not until chapter 12 that we get this really important detail. So I want to skip to chapter 12 really quick. It says, now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years, to the very day, the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So if you're not 
paying attention when you're reading scripture, you might miss the fact that almost half a millennia has passed between this page and this page. Right? 430 years is a long time. And just as a side note, as one of those Bible reading tools to keep in your back pocket, that happens a lot in Scripture, where you turn a page or you go a verse and 500 years goes by like that. Okay? So it's, it's important to kind of keep that in your mind because it can get a little bit disorienting when that much time passes between pages. And so usually, when I'm reading Scripture and a big time shift happens like that, I like to step back and think about what can happen in that amount of time. So let me give you an example for us today. If you went back 430 years ago today, William Shakespeare had just written his first play. Now imagine for a moment you're reading a history book about Europe. And on one page it's talking about Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet and King Henry VIII. And then in the very next sentence it starts talking about the things that happened during the COVID-19 lockdowns. That's a big shift. That's a big change. So we almost, when you're reading scripture this week, you almost have to stop and reset your brain for a minute and realize that you're working in a completely new era in the Bible. Okay, I just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page there. So I want to start up in verse 6 here. This is what we read. It says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Okay, so, so why did Joseph mean nothing to this new king? We just talked about, right? 430 years had passed. He probably didn't even know he existed. Right? Almost 500 years passes. Joseph was long gone by the time this pharaoh comes to power. So that's probably why he didn't mean anything to this new king. And I don't know how you are when you're reading the Bible, but when I see stuff like this, like a new king, a new person gets introduced, my first thought is like, well, who is this guy? I want to know more about him. Do we have his mummy? Do we know who he is? Do we know what he did? All of this kind of stuff. And unfortunately, the Bible actually never mentions the Pharaoh by name in the book of Exodus. They just call him Pharaoh. And that's actually for a very specific reason. See, in ancient Egypt, they believed that their Pharaohs, when they died, they became gods. I'm putting air quotes around that. Gods, right? That's why they had the mummies and the pyramids and all of that kind of stuff, is because they believed that when Pharaoh died, he was a god and he was worshipped. And so, <coughs> excuse me, one of the interesting things they would do is when, if a new Pharaoh came along and they didn't like the old Pharaoh, they would actually go in and scratch out that Pharaoh's name, right? Because it, it was a way of insulting that Pharaoh, right? By saying like, you're no longer deified. You're no longer a god. In a sense, they would erase him from history as an insult. Um, which makes sense, right? It's, it's pretty hard to be a god, quote-unquote, if nobody even knows you exist. 
And so what we're getting here in Exodus is a very clever little thumb in the nose to Pharaoh by not mentioning his name. Right? Basically, what Exodus is telling us is that not only are you not a god, Pharaoh, but you're so insignificant that we're going to erase you from history. We're not even going to bother to speak your name. So it's a very effective ancient insult. So don't miss that. But unfortunately for us, when we read the Bible, we kind of want to know who he is. Not because we think he's a god, but it kind of helps us to understand the Bible better. And so that makes it that much more difficult to try and figure out what we're looking at when we're reading Exodus. Okay? We can get close. Um, we can take from what we know in other parts of Scripture, and we can line that up with historical events where we do know the date of when it happened. And we can actually kind of work our way backwards, and we can get roughly plus or minus about 300 years of figuring out when the events in Exodus happened. Which, I know 300 years seems like a big gap, but when you're talking about stuff that's this old, that's actually pretty good. right? So we can get close. And then we can take that and we can look at what Egypt says about all of their pharaohs, and we can kind of get an idea of who this guy was. And so what I'm about to give you guys here is my best guess at who I think the pharaoh of Egypt was. So, full disclaimer, this is just my doing research and who I think it was. We got this guy here. Let me show you a picture. This guy here is named Thutmose II. Um, this would be presumably who the second pharaoh is, right? So this is the one that, that talked to Moses and refused to let the people go. And so who we're looking at in Exodus 1 is probably this guy's father and or grandfather. Could be either one. We don't know. Um, but what's fascinating is when you look at uh, what the Egyptians have written down, um, they report about a 400-year span at which um, there were some Canaanite people who were in charge of Egypt. And this actually lines up perfectly with the time that Joseph was involved in the courts in Egypt. Right? Um, because they would have had a friendly relationship with the Israelites, right? And then this guy, Thutmose, is either his dad or his grandfather. They were responsible for overthrowing those Canaanite people and getting pure-blooded Egyptians back on the throne. Um, and they were not friendly with the Israelites. They enslaved a lot of people from that region, which, again, lines up almost perfectly with what we're reading in Scripture. But here's where it gets really cool. Um, this Thutmose guy, when they dug up his mummy, they found that he was covered in cysts and pockmarks all over his body, just like he experienced some sort of plague or uh, disease of some kind. And none of the other mummies before him and none of the other mummies after him have these pockmarks all over his skin. Only this guy and the people who were in his administration. Um... We also find out that this Thutmose pharaoh was one of the only pharaohs to not have a firstborn son to take over for him on the throne. Which was not common at all back in those days, by the way. If you're a king and the only way your lineage passes on is through the firstborn son, you're going to find a way to have a firstborn son. right? So obviously something must have happened 
according to history. Something must have happened to prevent him from having a firstborn son to take over on the throne for him. I think we all know what that is, but you know the historical scholarly people like scratching their heads trying to figure it out. But I don't know. Uh, so, but this his wife actually had to take over as queen pharaoh, which was not common, right? They didn't have female pharaohs back then. Um, and to put the icing on the cake, this is what Moses' wife said when she became pharaoh. This is a quote from her. She writes in one of the, the inscriptions, she says, I have restored that which had been ruined. I raised up that which had gone to pieces formerly since the Asiatics, which is people from east of Egypt, um, were in the midst of avarice in the Northland, which is where we're talking about here. And vagabonds were in the midst of them, overthrowing that which had been made. They ruled without Ray. Now, Ray is the name of one of the Egyptian gods. So, she's describing her late husband and what happened during his reign. And she says there were some people who came from the east who left Egypt in ruins. They didn't believe in the Egyptian god. Um, and, and they kind of wrecked the place. So why do I go through telling you all that? A couple of things. Number one, I find it fascinating. And I love sharing fascinating things with my friends. And so I love when I, when I learn these things to share them with you. But number two, um, there are a lot of people who are would try to make the claim that the events in Exodus never happened because they will say, well, there's no evidence outside of the Bible that this stuff happened. And so I want to give you this kind of information to kind of, for lack of a better term, to arm yourself with the fact that, that yes, it, there is plenty of evidence outside of the Bible that these events happened. Um, when you, know, when you have conversations with people, if somebody does not believe that the Bible is the word of God, it's pretty hard to convince them using the Bible, unfortunately. right? Um, so I kind of wanted to show that what we see here in the book of Exodus lines up really, really well with what we dig up in archaeology and what we find uh, in other sources out upon the Bible. Um, the last reason I wanted to share with this is because I want to kind of impress upon you what kind of people the Egyptians were. Um, the Egyptians never liked about the Exodus because they were a very proud people. Right? You can kind of get that from the fact that they would scratch out each other's names and they thought that they were gods. And so and they were overcome by the scent of pride and everything that Egypt did revolved around maintaining their status as a world's superpower. Um, and they were willing to do pretty much anything to maintain that high position in the world. So I want you to keep that image in mind as we read on here in Exodus chapter 1 to get an idea of who it is we're actually dealing with. So in verse 9, we read, this is the new king talking. He says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Okay, so I want you to step back for a minute and think about 
the disparity that exists between Egypt and the Israelites. Okay? Egypt was a world superpower. Um, they were basically one of the very first empires. They had palaces and temples and warships and pyramids and chariots. In fact, the pyramids, by the, by the time the events in Exodus happen, the pyramids would have already been considered ancient artifacts. That's how long Egypt had been in power. Right? So, compare that to the descendants of Abraham. They were nomadic sheep herders who lived in tents and lived off the land. I mean, basically, they were nobodies, right? And so you have this, this, they didn't have temples, they didn't have palaces. So think about, like, if the United States got into a war with a bunch of tribal people on an island near Papua New Guinea. Like, that's the kind of disparity we're talking about here. So Pharaoh wasn't actually worried about the Israelites, per se. He was worried about his slaves joining up with one of his enemies, and he might lose his workforce, right? So the, he was looking around at all of these other rising superpowers around the world, and he was thinking, if I, if I let these backwoods nomadic sheep herders get too numerous, they might just join up with the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and I might lose my workforce. And so he did what any other dictator would do, and he tried his best to oppress the peasants, right? From his point of view, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to keep the peasants down. So in verse 11, we read, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Okay, so Pithom and Ramses. These are two cities in the northern part of Egypt. They're not like capital cities. Um, their, their capital was farther south in a well-protected area. So Pithom and Ramses were basically military outposts. Right? That was the place where they would send their extra chariots and their extra food as a store city to store in case somebody else came and invaded. Um, that way, if, they, if war broke out, they would have all the provisions they would need to fight off the Assyrians or the Babylonians if it came to combat. Um, and again, just to sort of see what of a drastic difference there is, the Israelites were their unpaid labor that maintained Egypt's military might. Right? So Pharaoh thinks that he's getting a two-for-one deal here. Not only is he keeping the peasants in check, but he's also expanding his military. And so from Pharaoh's point of view, he thinks he's got Israel under his thumb. He's got a solid handle on his empire. But unfortunately for him, we read in verse 12, it says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. That word dread there can also be translated to mean loathed. And so there was this deep-seated hatred 
of the Israelites going on there. And the more he tried to oppress them, the more they spread. Which, by the way, isn't that how the church spreads? The more the world tries to keep the church down and keep God's people down, the more it thrives. Seems to be a, a growing theme here. But so Pharaoh is struggling to keep his subjects under control. He's worried about his kingdom. And so he tries to tamp down the Israelites, enforcing them into more rigorous forms of labor, with the idea being that if they're so busy working, being my slaves, then they won't possibly have enough time to grow and reproduce more, right? They won't have any time to have more children because they'll be too busy building my empire. We read, they worked them ruthlessly. In verse 13, it says, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And then we get the turning point. In verse 15, this is the catalyst for the entire Exodus story that sets everything in motion. Verse 15 says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. On the scale of evil... There is not a level that goes lower than that. Think of all the things that we know to be sinful, to be against God's word. Right? Let me give you an example. We're all under the shared agreement that lying is sinful. Yes? Show of hands? Yes. Okay. That's an easy one. I, but I'm sure that we could all imagine a situation in our mind in which telling a lie might end up being the lesser of two evils. Right? Doesn't make it good, but we can imagine a situation where we're given an unfortunate choice and we have to choose. That's the one we're going to choose, right? Uh, you imagine the, the armed gunman comes into your, your workplace and says, are your co-workers hiding in that office? You might not tell a direct lie, but if you want to save the lives of your co-workers, your friends and family, you might at least be deceptive. Again, that doesn't make lying less simple. It just means that we live in an imperfect world where the lesser of two evils is a choice we're given. There is no situation ever in the history of ever in which killing infants is the lesser of two evils. That's just not possible, but that's exactly what Pharaoh did. In his mind, he thought to himself, I need to do this thing because I need to maintain my status as king. To maintain my power. Which, by the way, we uh, Stu read from Matthew. That's exactly what King Herod did when he found out that the Messiah had been born. So don't miss that. We talked about fingerprints a while back. This is a fingerprint of King Herod. To preserve his own power, he ordered the death of thousands of young boys. Which... By the way, Herod was a Jew. Herod had read this story 
Herod knew exactly how God dealt with people like this and still chose to make that decision, which makes things all the more um, remarkable in the Christmas story, right? In the Christmas account, it's the wise men and an angel coming to Joseph who saves the life of Jesus, right? The wise men tell uh, decide not to go back and tell Herod where they found the baby. The angel warns Joseph and his family escape into Egypt. Well, here in, in Exodus, it's not the wise men who are deceiving the tyrant. It's the midwives. Right? It's the women who are tasked with making sure that life can come into this world. Let me read verse 17. It says, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. See, the midwives understood that Pharaoh's authority stopped right at the line where God's law began. We were in Romans 13, right? Romans 13 tells us about how we should submit to our governing authorities. Um, but when the governing authorities goes directly against the word of God, well, then that's, that choice is simple. Who would you rather be punished by? That's the way I like to think of it. If you're given a choice to follow God's laws or man's laws, I would rather follow God's laws and be punished by men than the other way around. And these midwives rightly understood that preserving human life was far more important than preserving an empire. They understood that life has value beyond political pressures, beyond nation building. And remember, remember that little bit I told you about how um, the book of Exodus erases Pharaoh's name as an insult because they do not want his name to live on throughout history? Look whose names aren't left out. Think about that for a moment. The most powerful ruler in all the world gets his name scratched out. But Sifra and Pua, their names live on for eternity. That's beautiful, isn't it? Because Sifra and Pua, most likely, if the book of Exodus wouldn't have mentioned their names, they would have been like every other person who lived during that time who would have lived and died and was forgotten forever. Right? But because of their love of God and their fear of the Lord, God chose to write their names in the Bible that would be read for thousands of years. That's beautiful. And what the Bible is setting up for us is this precedent that against all odds... God always wins. I want to say that one more time. God always wins. 
Because he took the greatest superpower of the entire world at the time, and he outsmarted them with a couple of midwives and some nomadic sheep herders, and as we'll read later on, a lady with a basket. And he rewarded them greatly for their faith. Verse 20 says, So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. This is important. Because in ancient Egypt, the reason you became a midwife was because you were not able to have children of your own. Right? That's the reason you would have taken on that profession. It would have been viewed as sort of a consolation prize. And I don't care if you're living in the year 2022 AD or the year 2022 BC. That's a very difficult life to live. Helping all of these women bring life into the world and then not being able to have a child yourself, that's gut-wrenching. I, uh, before my son Theodore was born, it took my wife and I several years to get pregnant. And we were, for a while there, we were fairly convinced that we were never going to have kids. And that just sucks the life right out of you. And so, the fact that God understood the pain that they were going through and rewarded them for their faith just shows all the much more how great of a God we have. But then the tables turn a little bit. Again, in verse 22, we get this final verse in chapter 1. It says, then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But every girl, let live. But let every girl live. So now, Pharaoh is no longer content with just doing evil by himself. He's extended his evil by royal decree to the entire population. Think about how unbelievable that is. Every single Egyptian citizen was ordered by the law to commit infanticide. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope in that situation, does it? But God always provides We turn the page, or we go down to the next chapter in chapter 2. And it says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Okay, so just I'm going to step back for a second. Remember when we talked about Noah and the ark and covering it with pitch and how we talked about how that represents atonement because that word means a covering? Well, here in Exodus, 
The word for basket is the exact same word used for ark. And the word for pitch is the exact same word used when God commanded Noah to cover the ark with an atonement, to cover it with pitch. Right? So, so don't miss that. That what we're getting here is a, I guess you wouldn't call it a fingerprint, it's a backwards fingerprint of the story of Noah and the salvation that God brought to the world through the flood. We're getting the exact same thing here. So in the midst of all of that evil and all of that destruction, one boy is saved. We read verse 5. It says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So not only does God allow Moses to escape harm, but he does it in such a way that insults the intelligence of Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh makes this big decree, which, by the way, even his own daughter had enough common sense not to follow. He makes this big decree, and then Moses ends up being able to go back to his own mother anyway. And the, the Pharaoh's uh, bank account paid her to raise her own child. You want to talk about against all odds, God always wins? And again, like I said before, as Christmas is coming up, I want you to understand that this is almost exactly what happens in the Christmas account with Herod and Jesus. Yet in both instances, God is not thwarted. So I want you to remember, when you start to feel anxious about the things going on in the world, I have conversations with people all the time who are anxious about this politician or this celebrity or this world event. And I always have to remind them, we've had bad people and bad leaders and bad culture all the way back since the time of Adam. And God always wins. And the time that we're living in now is no different than the time we were living in then. I want to take a moment here and back up a few steps and talk about the good that shines in the midst of all of that. I want to talk about Sifra and Puma. All of this evil was going on in the world from the decree from on high. And what did Sifra and Puma do? 
They chose to dedicate themselves to preserving the lives of these young children. Notice what they didn't do. They didn't stand up and wave signs. They didn't wave banners around. They didn't shout in the streets. They didn't get on the internet and type nasty emails. They got to work. They saw that there was a travesty happening, and they could have went and and had a petition and a protest and all that. They said, what's that going to do? These women were afraid and terrified, and they helped them. They said, we, we will make sure that your baby is fine. We've got a lot of young women in our world who are finding themselves um, unexpectedly pregnant. And what I want us as the church to do when these women are afraid, these women are terrified, they don't know what to do with their lives, and they have no support. I want us as the church to be Sipper and Puma. They need diapers, we got diapers. They need a place to stay, we can give them a place to stay. They need spiritual support, they need to know that they can do this. I want us to be Sipper and Puma. Rolling up our sleeves and doing the work that needs to be done one woman at a time. Because we have God on our side. And with God, we can do miraculous things. So I want to leave you with this thought. If God, and if you've read the Exodus story, if God can do all of the miraculous things that he did to save these people, to the most powerful nation of the world? If he can work wonders through a bunch of backwoods, nomadic sheep herders, don't you think that he can work in your life to bring light into the world? Don't you think he can work miracles to deliver you the same way he delivered them? In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So I have one question. What purpose have you been called to? What is your place in God's kingdom? What is your role in all of this? And whatever it is, I want you to do it. Sifra and Pua, their role was to save the lives of thousands of Israelite babies. Pharaoh's daughter, her role was just to save one. And I can't tell you what your specific role in God's kingdom is. I can't tell you exactly what direction you need to go in order to fulfill God's kingdom, but I can tell you this. God created you with a purpose. He has a plan for your life, and he's just waiting for you to go out and fulfill it. <clears throat> and God will work in your life if you show the love and faith that he asks. So don't be 
anxious about the world and all of the evil that we see. Don't be anxious about this politician or that celebrity or anything like that. Just do the thing that God sent you to do and let him sort out the rest. Because God wins every single time against all odds. One of the things that's is sometimes difficult is, is, is finding out where you are, finding out where you belong in God's kingdom. If you haven't committed yourself to the Lord, if you haven't followed God, here in a moment we're going to have a song of invitation to have an opportunity to do that. But even if you have committed yourself to the Lord, even if you are a Christian, I want you to take some time today, take some time this week, Spend time in prayer with God, asking him what your purpose is. Asking him how you can be of service to his kingdom. Will you pray with me? <coughs> Father, we come to you humbly in awe of all the power that you exert, Lord. We are before you just amazed at your glory, amazed at your majesty. And we just ask that you would use us to do your good works, Lord. We ask that you would send us out into the world, that you would help us to be like Sifra and Pua and Pharaoh's daughter and Moses and all of the other ones who came before us, Lord. We ask that you would give us the strength and the courage that we need to be citizens of your kingdom. We pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. So at this time, I would love to sing a song of invitation. This is an opportunity to commit yourself to God if you haven't done so. Um, the song I want to sing is called The Battle Belongs. Um, this is a